I'm Sherry Greco-Rikus, co-founder of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Welcome to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. As an investment advisor, I guide clients to reflect upon their core values as they make major life decisions. I will be interviewing real people with real stories who have embraced this approach to achieve success. I hope their stories will inspire you to maximize your return on life. I am happy to welcome Susan Abrams to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. I've known Susan for many, many years. Our paths have crossed professionally and we have many mutual friends. And we even played poker together a few weeks ago. But it was coffee several weeks ago that I really got to know Susan, and I know you will enjoy getting to know her as well and hearing all her insights. Susan is a business and community leader. She serves as a board of director at IFA Illinois Climate Bank, teaches at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management, and is working on her second book, which we'll hear about a little later. Previously, she was CEO of the Illinois Holocaust Museum, COO of JCC Chicago, president of JCA Properties, consultant at McKinsey and & Company, and an analyst at Goldman Sachs. There is so much more to know about Susan. She is on many boards, and we're going to list her whole bio on the Maximize Your Return on Life website. But she is getting her 20-year anniversary of the book she authored called New Success Rules for Women, 10 Surefire Strategies for Reaching Your Career Goals. And I actually bought that book 20 years ago and just kind of reread it in the last week or so. And there's so many great insights, and we're going to talk about all that today. So, Susan, did I miss anything on your intro? I think you were quite complete, Sherry. Thank you. And I've uh, I've been watching Susan from afar and what she did with the Holocaust Museum and all the in- initiatives were unbelievable. But Susan, I've I've always wondered, you know, you started at Goldman and McKinsey and then you shifted to the nonprofit sector. How was that transition and, and what made you decide to do that? It was something, Cherry, that I think uh, was within me from growing up in and around New York City, an appreciation for cultural institutions and an interest in them, what made them tick. And I can remember before I started my first job out of college at Goldman, the week before, finding my way to somebody in New York. And I had this hypothesis that the Whitney and others were missing this vast swath of young people as part of their audience and that they could engage them effectively to help build their pipeline. And so I went and connected with this person and explained my thinking and what I was interested in helping them do. And she essentially pinched my cheek and she said, honey, we have donors who write six and seven figure checks if you'd like to work at one of those events, we'd love it. And I just thought, memo to self, go where you're needed. I started work and I set that aside. But I think it was it was something that was with me and a notion too of using business skills, which I was interested in to make the world a better place. And that comes back again and again. Uh, so that that's what ultimately drew me to Kellogg for their 
uh, nonprofit management program. It's what, uh, when I was ready to leave, McKinsey took me to Chicago Children's Museum and has animated me either with my day job or as an extracurricular throughout my career in life. And you think having kind of that corporate background helped you in the nonprofit sector? Because there's a lot of people that do think about going in and they think that it's a tough, a tough road to go from corporate to the nonprofit sector. Absolutely, 100%. I couldn't have done the things that I've done and helped organizations achieve without that business background, both my time at Goldman, but and especially I think my time at McKinsey, really thinking about strategy, problem solving was critical for everything else that I've done. And running a not-for-profit is 100% running a business in order to be successful, you need to be successful financially. Your goal may not be returned to shareholders in the same way, but you're gathering investors and your donors and the people who put time into your organization and your return uh, is all different kinds of products. But sometimes, you know, straightforward businesses at JCC Chicago, uh, there was a $6 million early childhood business. So at six locations, there were health and wellness. So it, it's all about uh, being smart on the management and vision and strategy side. And then, of course, on the execution, you're just doing different things. And I went to a lot of the Holocaust Museum events. And what I loved about Susan is you had that combination. Often you see like an executive director of nonprofit, they're really good at management. They might be good at strategic vision, but you also had that knack of raising money. And I remember hearing that you had raised all kinds of money. So any of the nonprofits that can get someone like Susan out there, it's not just running the business, but it's also the external relations, hearing her speak, raising the money. And, and congratulations. I know you broke through all the goals that were given, and it was just so great to see. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. She's blushing a little, but that's okay. Um, but really what we wanted to talk about today was your book, because there's so many listeners and so many peers that often come to me and say, you know, how were you successful as, as a woman in pretty much a male-dominated industry? And Susan and I talked, she was at Goldman uh, many years ago. I was at another, at Sanford Bernstein, I was in banking and you know, it was a lot of men there, but I think there's a lot of things we can use to our advantage. So I want to talk and bring you back. Why did you decide to write this book 20 years ago? I think you were kind of ahead of your time when you did it. I decided to write the book when I started to be really aware of the lack of women in the business world and particularly at upper echelons. And having grown up loving to talk to my dad about business, I was somewhat surprised. And I had girlfriends from college who were also interested in business. So it was a surprise to me when I arrived at Goldman and looked around and I was the only woman at, in my group at my tenure level. And beyond that, there was one female partner out of tens of thousands of employees worldwide. And that started me asking, why are there so few? What does it take to succeed? How do we get and disseminate that information? And it was in a conversation with my dad talking about some of those things that he said, gee, Susan, you ought to interview those women who have broken through and you ought to write a book. Well, at the time, I think I must have just kind of 
laughed because I was in one of those jobs that was pretty much around the clock, all consuming. And I was really just focused on doing a good job at the job in hand. And I set that aside. And I don't think I thought about it again until I was actually partway through the book. But what sparked me was about a decade later in what had been dubbed the year of the woman, a few women were elected to Congress. And I think there was a high profile female CEO named Catalyst organization out of New York started chronicling and communicating where women were in the business field, because if you care about something, you measure it. And so what we learned was that while women were just about half the workforce using the Fortune 500 as a proxy for the larger business world, women were about 11% of officers in Fortune 500 companies just a couple percentage points of the five highest paid using that as a proxy for power. And so it seemed to me that it really wasn't the year of the woman and we needed to do more. And somehow that notion must have been percolating of the book. And that was an opportunity to create a product that I hoped could scale getting women these answers to help them achieve in the business world. And Susan, as I was reading the book, there's so many women that I've kind of looked up to, like Diana Swank and some of the other ones. How were you able to interview them? How were you able to get in? These were, you know, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. So how did that work? It was through relationships primarily and some cold calls as well, but primarily relationships. So let me give you a couple of examples. I had worked, as you mentioned, at Goldman, and a young vice president there was probably my first mentor, and she ultimately rose to become vice chairman of the firm. So I called up Suzanne, or I reached out to her and said, Suzanne, I'm, I, I want to change these numbers. I'm looking to write a book. Here's what I'd like to do and how I'd like to do it, and here's how you can help. And she said, absolutely. And you know, within a month, I was sitting with her uh, in New York talking about, um, about the book and the lessons that she had learned along the way and wanted to share with others. And then Suzanne said, here are, you know, I asked everyone at the end, who else should I be talking to? And Suzanne gave me three more people to talk to. So that was one place that I started and it grew exponentially. I did the same thing with Nancy Karch, who was the most senior woman at McKinsey, while I was sitting in her living room, she called up Sue Chronic, who was running Burdine's department store in Florida and said, Sue, you've got to talk to Susan. And within weeks, I was sitting in her office in Florida. I reached out to my sister. She introduced me to the most senior woman at Saks Fifth Avenue. And it went from there. So starting in these different places and uh, each of the women I interviewed found me credible, prepared, and a good investment of their time. And so they made additional introductions. That's how, for example, from Sherry Wilson Gray at Sachs, from my sister, I ended up sitting in the office of Janet Robinson, president of the New York Times. So it just went like that. that that's amazing. It must have been so fascinating for you to meet all these women. And, you know, the tagline to the book is 10 uh, surefire strategies for reaching your career goals. And number seven is the more people you know, the more you can get done. And I think that's an example um, that, you know, even our young listeners, it's never too early to start networking. And if you don't ask, you don't get, and you don't know who people know. So do you want to expand a little bit about that? The more people you know, the more you get done? 
Absolutely. And I think you can um, learn from people and get help along the way in unexpected places too. And so I remember getting suggestions from people on the sideline of my kids' soccer games, you know, that turned out to be interesting and all, all kinds of other places. If you share what you're, what you're interested in doing and what you want to accomplish, people want to be helpful and they'll, they'll try to help you. So um, I think, you know, it, you don't have to join formal networking and mentor relationships. I think the more organically things happen, the, the better at work and beyond work. And certainly, um, I know one of the things that I think is important in relationship developing is helping others, right? Because often the strongest relationships are built on reciprocity. So if, if I'm helping somebody else, they're inclined to want to help me as well. But it really also relates to um, something that we could talk about in lots of different contexts, which is making the ask, um, asking people to help you because sometimes they don't know, you know, they can't intuit what you want to accomplish. So I find that asking people um, for help with reaching, you know, who would you suggest I talk to? And wow, can you help me reach them? Or, or who do you have relationships with? And that goes on and on. And we could talk about it more in terms of uh, if you're interested in making the ask of some of the other applications with uh, promotions and money and job assignments and all kinds of things that really make a difference. Yeah. And, the, and it's gotten easier and harder, I think, with technology, because it used to be, you know, we'd walk down the road and have coffee with someone and we didn't know that much about them. Now we have LinkedIn or a link at LinkedIn to see who knows someone who knows someone. I mean, before you mentioned you were on the phone calling people, but um, even Susan and I had coffee like I said, a few weeks ago, and it was so natural. It was like, we both wanted to help each other. You know, she talked about what she's looking for. Boom, boom. I gave her a couple of names. She asked me what I, she's making connections. And, and that's the beauty of, of the more people, you know, and letting people know what you do and what you're looking for. And, you know, if, as my dad always said, if you don't ask, you don't get the worst they'll say is no. And, People are afraid to make the ask, whether it's for money, whether it's for job interview connections, whatever it is. So I love that concept in the books. I'd love to share one more story on that, because after the book came out, um, did the book tour with uh, TV, radio, bookstores, but it segued into talking to corporate groups, students and alumni. And I can remember so strongly uh, speaking to the American Bar Association, a women's group of the American Bar Association. And, and this came up as one of the things making me ask. And afterwards, I was absolutely surrounded by people sharing stories. And they went something like this. Gee, I was at a law firm. And I, um, when my colleague left, I thought that his clients would be split up amongst the rest of us who worked on similar business. And when that didn't happen, I went to my manager and said, how come I didn't get any of those clients? And he said, I didn't know you wanted them. John told me he was interested. So you can't assume people know you have to make those kinds of asks. And as, as you said, Sherry, the worst that happens is somebody says no, but you learn something and they learn something. They'll be less inclined to say no the next time. And they might give you valuable feedback that will help you to be stronger and, and put your strategy together for achieving more quickly that objective. 
And I bet that woman will never not ask when someone leaves the law firm. Um, yes. But I, I think it's kind of the way that we were all raised. Women, you know, a while ago were good girls. And if we work really hard, everyone's going to notice and they're just going to hand it to us. But life doesn't work that way. You have to reach for what you want. And I'll just do a real quick story. Um, my dad was starting a second bank and he was selling stock. And I was, I think, 15 and my pay was a pizza. And I went door to door with him to sell the subscription of the stock. And a lot of people would say no. And I said to him, I go, aren't you discouraged with the no's? He says, you need enough no's to get to a yes. So I count the no's. Once I get no's, I know I'm going to get a yes. And I've, uh, my husband always says, you just keep asking. You keep asking till you get yes. And, and that's just a lesson that I hope the listeners will take from us. So what other rules, Susan, can you share with us? Uh, sure. I think that um, taking smart risks is really important, too. And it's not just taking smart risks, but it's being prepared. So you have plans B, C, and D in your pocket and ready to go. And that really makes the whole thing less risky. But everything entails some risk, and that's... Uh, applying for or accepting uh, positions that you might not have all the pieces of. You probably never will. When you're making decisions on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, you're never going to have perfect information. So you have to be comfortable making decisions and moving forward. But I remember talking to Betsy Holden, who uh, became CEO at Kraft Foods, and uh, Betsy talked about a story from when she was mid to senior level manager running a pizza division and they were creating a self-rising pizza something that was new on the market required new technology new equipment to manufacture new packaging and they wanted it out by a certain time and everyone said of course no it can't be done and she said we're gonna do it and so they charged ahead but for each one of these new territories, they had what they thought was their best plan, but they had alternate packaging if the first one didn't work. They had backup plans on the manufacturing. They had sales plans. And if they didn't reach this milestone, but you know something, they were at Y instead of X, they had a different plan in place. And with that, they really took out much of the risks. Betsy also employed those strategies on the home front. So she was a working woman, a working mom, and her husband was working. And so they, her sister had, was a high-powered executive. And so that was kind of plan B for each of them, that they could, if something went awry with childcare, they could back each other up. Well, she started a network at Kraft too. So that could be plan C. And, and you know, there was a plan D. And so those same kinds of strategies helped her on both the professional and the personal front. Susan, let's go back to Betsy, because you mentioned something that is a question I get very often is, how were you able through your career to balance work and family? And I have a few things I want to say, but I want to hear from you because we've never really talked about that. Okay. One of the things I want to put out there from the get-go is, uh, and it's something I talk about in the epilogue of my book on having it all, because it's hard to talk about women in business success without that question, can you have it all? I really think balance is a faulty objective. And I uh, put out instead that we should be thinking about blend. 
balance, uh, you know, think about a seesaw. If you have one a change on one side, then to stay in balance, you need an equal and opposite change on the other side. And when does that ever happen? You know, that you could fine tune to that level. Instead, if you think about blend, it's much more forgiving over time. And I think time is the key. You can have it all, but you may not have it all at the same time. And so at different points in your life, you may need different blends. At some points, you may, may need to travel more for a career. At other points, you may not. At some points, you may be able need to focus more on family or friends or something that's come up, you know, that requires more of your energy and attention. And you have to step back a little at work. So I think if you have this approach and um perspective that it won't always be smooth, there will be bumps in the road, and you'll need to make adjustments and, and have different blends that you can be more forgiving of yourself along along the way. Um, and for me, you know, with my husband, who um, has had a range of demanding jobs, we've managed somehow to not travel at the same time, we were really never out of town for work at the same time, somebody was always home, had great help at home. So, um, you know, a support network is absolutely critical, both at work and on the home front. And for everyone, that will be different for me. It's family, it's friends. But while raising my kids, it was also um, some students and professionals who I hired to assist uh, with with family childcare and family um shopping and meal preparation and things like that too. So I gave myself permission to to help make it all possible. And actually that's exactly what I was gonna say. There's no such thing as balance, but you said it so articulately with this blend. And so listeners, it's a blend. There's no such thing as balance. And let's all blend because otherwise you're gonna put pressure on yourself and and one part of your life is going to always feel guilty. So I always say, you know, you can't be a perfectionist at everything. You got to do what you need to do at that time and just blend. And, you know, I have found that I actually incorporated my kids as part of my career when I was at, at uh, Sanford Bernstein. We had a big um, push. I was in business development, bringing in clients. So I put them on an incentive plan. So for every new client that I brought in, they would get a $5 Dave & Buster's gift certificate that we could use. And so one day, you know, it was a snowy day. I was on my way to catch a train and my daughter, half sleeping, said, Mom, have you brought any clients lately? We haven't got, we had a chart in the kitchen. And I'm like, oh no, I'm gonna have to hear this from you. And now I got to hear it from my boss. But we still <laughs> laugh about it today. And now that my kids, and I'm sure, Susan, you know, your kids are working now. And I always say, um, you know, did I miss too much? And they say, no, you were always there and, and we're glad you were happy. And, you know, for people that, that stay at home with their families, they're happy too. Everyone, like I've always said, has to find what's right for them. So I'm sure you're a role model for your kids as well. I, um, I, any, I any other things you want to tell us about the book? About the book, sure. Um, passion is chapter number one, because I do think if, if you aspire to the top and not everyone does, and that's really great too, everyone's goals are different, but for really uh, top level achievement, and I think to have fun along the way, if you can find your way to professional roles where you feel passionate, that that makes a huge difference. We spend so much time of, you know, so much of our day at work that being excited about it, passionate 
is really fantastic. And, and plus it has the many added benefits, one of which is your colleagues will feel your passion and that helps to rev them up too. Uh, but I think it's important for all of us, particularly the young people out there to know you don't have to find that dream job right away. In fact, it's almost impossible that you'll be able to do that. And as an example, I can just cite my own career tra trajectory. I started at Goldman, which I, you know, was my pie in the sky job out of college. And I learned while I was at Goldman that actually I didn't want to, I didn't aspire to be a partner at Goldman, um, raising money for others to expedite and achieve their career objectives was not as interesting to me as, as learning to run a business. I traveled around with on Goldman's smallest deal with the president of FAO Schwartz toy company and listening to him describe his clients and his business and merchandising, I loved that. And it motivated me to go back to business school with an eye towards running a business one day. And then out of business school, in order to pay back that investment in the MBA and continue my learning, I went to McKinsey. And as we already talked about, learned so many great things. But I saw, again, I didn't want to be a partner at McKinsey. And when the opportunity arose and finances permitted, I made that change to the not-for-profit side. And I think yeah, part of a lot of people that are successful, including myself, not that I'm that successful, but um, I love what I do. I love, I think. I you love, can say that, Sherry. <laughs> yes, I should. I, I am a success. But I love what I do. And with a lot of my friends, just because you're really good at something doesn't mean you have to stay at that profession. You may be the best lawyer or accountant. But often skills are transferable. Um, I was in banking, then I went into investments. And then what I love now is that I work with clients, but I also run a business. So like Susan said, and I think I, I didn't, I don't know your dad, but I think our dads probably would have gotten along because my dad always talked about business with me. He, uh, the kids were getting teen magazines at overnight camp and I, he was <laughs> from the uh, Chicago Sun-Times snipping out the, I picked a few stocks, he'd send me how my stocks would do. He'd wait till the evening paper to come. You know, there was no online. So I think I was always, I used to chart I how I'm doing. I got the news clips at camp too. <laughs> yeah. So so we, I think that's part of it. And so, you know, if if you're a parent and you have daughters or or sons, you know, it's never too early to start um, business. And, and I think no matter what, people do if they have some kind of finance background that will definitely, definitely help them. So we um, talked a little bit that you're embarking on a second book and I just love the topic and it's resilience. I have tried to pound that into my kids. It's not how many times you fall, it's how many times you get back up. And can you talk a little bit about why you're thinking about writing this book about resilience? I think I really started to think about the importance of resilience. Well, actually going back to when writing the book, and then I'll tell you more recently, but uh, chapter 10 in new success rules for women is never accept no for an answer, which is really about tenacity, but it goes hand in glove with resilience. You are going to get those no's, those turn downs. Um, Phyllis Applebaum applied for a license 17 times for her messenger service 
before finally storming into the director to talk about why she was being denied. No woman had ever been given that license before. Crazy things like that. So um, as I looked back, these are the, many of the same things. So appropriate expectations. And we touched on that again with blend and balance. You know, if you know there's going to be bumps in the road, then when they happen, you, you're less likely to be thrown completely off course. I think a belief in yourself is really critical that you can stand back up and keep going. That was certainly a common feature of the 45 women I interviewed. They were imbued by their families in some way with this belief that if they worked hard, they could accomplish. And whether, you know, for uh, many um, you know, traveling for business was their first time on a flight or, you know, they may not have come up in a background with parents who were in business, but because they had been given that spark of belief in themselves, it could carry them forward. Another thing, again, strong work ethic um, and a commitment to lifelong learning or what's called more commonly today, a growth mindset. And so I think when you have those setbacks, thinking about, okay, didn't want it to happen that way, wasn't great, what can I learn from it? And that really helps too. Um, and I, I think also uh, something that you spend a lot of time on in your book, um, and that I do too, and that's connection to something bigger and larger than yourself. And that could be your family, it could be um, some mission oriented, you know, making the world a better place or a big, big audacious business goal. If you, you're thinking about something bigger and that that's important to you, I think those kinds of larger goals and passions can keep you going as well. And, and as you mentioned, you know, I believe a lot in SMART goals, setting goals, making them specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and putting a time limit on it. And I think that that's important. And if you don't, as I say, you don't achieve it right now, try again. Uh, but I like in the book about lifelong learning, I've interviewed a lot of people that, you know, in their 50s, they're getting a certification and something different. Like you went to Northwestern and and got the nonprofit certification or went through their nonprofit program. But, you know, there's always, there's free courses online, there's podcasts, there's so many ways to get education and to keep yourself current. And I just always love to continue to learn. Absolutely. And wrapping back to why today, coming back at this topic of resilience, I think I started to think about it more recently in my role at Illinois Holocaust Museum, working with survivors. Mm -hmm. survivors of the Holocaust, because they had experienced the absolute worst that humanity can can offer, can put, you know, the worst thing in the world that could happen to you with losing most of their families and, and you know, genocide. And at the same time, those who I was fortunate enough to work with had survived and not only survived, but I was working with them because they were dedicated to sharing those lessons of the past and working towards a world when never again would be a reality for everyone. So the resilience that it took for them to um, rebound and, and create 
families and productive lives after all that they had experienced. Really, I thought a lot about it and particularly as the pandemic enveloped us because that required so much resilience from students, parents, families, individuals, everyone, and now with our divisive world. So I think resilience has always been important and will continue to be a defining trait. Yeah. And I, you know, I read a lot too, and they say that's one of the qualities of success. And unfortunately, and we're all guilty of this, sometimes we don't want our kids to fail. We want to pick up the pieces. We want to be there for them. And I think some of the best lessons, and I can think of my life were the times that things didn't go well. And I learned like that woman who will always ask for new clients, you know, you sometimes failing is, is the bright side of, of going forward. So don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to let your kids fail. It's all part of getting that resilience, which is so important. And you and I talked a little bit about this. So you wrote this book 20 years ago. Do you think a lot of, and we don't want to share it all because we'd love for you to get the book. We're going to put the link on it, The New Success Rules for Women, 10 Surefire Strategies for Reaching Your Career Goals. But has the world changed in 20 years or what's your opinion, Susan? The world has changed. Progress has been made, but not enough. Um, and I think many of the same, um, for sure, the same strategies still apply. Mm -hmm. I think that was probably my surprise most recently when related to uh, one of the uh, a class I'm working on at Kellogg. I pulled back out the book and somebody had asked me to um, give a graduation speech and draw from the new success rules for women. And so as I thought about it in the context of today, I was actually surprised at actually how apt each one of those things that we've been talking about still is 20 years later. So I guess that's the good news. There are tried and true strategies that will continue to work, but certainly um, things have changed. The numbers have gotten better, but they're not at parity. So we still have more to do. Yeah. So this, this might be a good gift for the listeners for your, for your, if you have women or, or cousins or nieces or nephews or daughters. Um, but I, I think that these strategies probably apply to both the men and women. So it's not, but, it, but I think it's been a challenge, especially when you get into the engineering or finance or banking world. So, well, it was a good refresher for me to read this because I love to mentor women. And there's some things I definitely want to bring up when I um, go to mentor women. So thanks for providing me with the book again, even though I probably read it 20 years ago, but sometimes uh, the best things we read over and over again. So my last question to you, Susan, is how do you maximize your return on life being as busy as you are? That's a great question, Sherry, and we're all always working on it. But I try to be really cognizant of, of values and the things that I'm trying to accomplish, those bigger goals, and then um, my family and my friends and meshing it together where I can. So um, making the world a better place, whether through mentoring or the book uh, and helping women to achieve or my work at JCC or the Holocaust Museum, um, those are things that I feel really passionate about, but I'm able to weave family and sometimes friends into them too, in a way that helps it all to come together. So I think my kids and absolutely my husband have always felt very much a part of what I'm doing and what he's doing. We talked about it always at the dinner table. They volu you know, we volunteer together at different community 
endeavors with our synagogue or with uh, the Children's Museum, or they come to events with me at Illinois Holocaust Museum. Uh, they'd love to ask my husband about some of the um, things that he was encountering at work in his day. So it, it always all felt like a family affair, which enabled me to really marry um, family, which is one of my primary values and, um, you know, my commitment to working as I can to, to make the world a better place. And I've been to many, many of the recently the Holocaust events, and it's not just Susan's immediate family that supports her. It's her entire family. They've got a big family. And so when she mentions family, she really means it. So, you know, I love that I asked Susan this question. What I'm hearing is that she maximizes the return of life of many others, especially those in need. So we will, again, link Susan's book. It is really, really a great read. And I love I love the interviews. I think that's the best part of it is, is the interviews with with people in high positions and women that really have um, gone far in their careers. But I always say, you know, success is not always monetary. It's often your emotional wealth is successful and being true to your values will make you success as well. And I know Susan is an example of that. If you'd like to learn more about how you can maximize your return on life, visit our website, Rappaport Rikus Capital Management, rrcapital.com. And I have my own website of sherrygrecorikus.com. But again, we'll put all the links about Susan on our website. And thanks, Susan. It's it's always fun to talk friends and and colleagues and people that, that are moving and shaking and making the world a better place. So thanks. Thank you, Sherry.